And the more humorous side, someone warned the people at Strasburg. They said, Philip isn't just a novice, he's an infant. So I hope that wasn't too disconcerting to them. So thank you for your love and prayers. I'd like to start with two questions this morning in the message. When do you feel closest to God? When do you feel closest to God? Have you ever thought about that? What times of your life? Isn't when everything is going so good you haven't thought about your dependence upon God for a long time? Or is it on the opposite end of that? When do we feel closest to God? The second question is, when do we experience less temptation and greater victory in our lives? Is it when things have gone so good for a long time that we maybe are starting to forget our total dependence upon God? Or is it on the opposite end of that experience? So I think those two questions answer each other. I believe we feel closest to God in the times of our deepest need, and we experience the least temptation from the flesh at that same moment. And as I've meditated on my own personal experiences, I began to realize that the times in my life where that were perceived to be the most difficult were also the time when I felt like the Spirit of God gave me the greatest relief from temptation. And I chose those words carefully. The greatest relief from temptation. None of us are immune to temptation. None of us are immune from the lust of the flesh, the, flesh, the pride of life, uh, and all of that. None of us are immune to that. But I think we'd all agree there are times when we experience greater temptation. There's times when we uh, just feel the need so much more than others. When have we experienced the greatest relief from temptation in our lives? I challenge you to think back to the most stretching experiences of your life. Maybe it was a cancer diagnosis, the death of someone close, a tremendous loss, times when we're completely at the end of ourselves, when we're brought face to face the reality of, the, of our absolute and complete dependence upon God for strength. I feel like the last month has been that, all of that for me. In many ways. And I can think back at other times of my life. I remember when Brother Eldon called me and said that five people went in a manure pit at Scott's. I remember my wife calling me from the hospital and saying, I was just diagnosed with an MS attack. I remember coming to the house one evening and finding my dear wife unconscious on the floor when she had her first seizure. All those times are times when we are totally at the end of ourselves. And those are the times that we are completely dependent upon God. We realize that, God, we can't fix this. You are in control. And I believe it's in those contexts that we draw closest to God if we allow ourselves to. And I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Verses 17 through 22 reads as follows, 
The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. Do we believe that? When we cry out to God, He hears, and He delivers us from all our troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. Do we believe that? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of all of them. And that, that would refer to the, uh, the testing or the trials that's referred to um, in, the, in the New Testament, the scourging, the um, God working in our lives to purify us and draw us closer to him. It says many are the afflictions of the righteous. You know, we could think like, well, God, uh, we have chose to serve you. Why do we face difficulties? But God in his... His omnipotence and His uh, sovereignty uses affliction to draw us even closer to Him and to purge out the dross of our lives and to work the hard spots out of this, this pot of clay that He's working on His wheel and shaping and molding. He keepeth all His bones, not one of them is broken. Prophecy to Jesus and His suffering on the cross. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be de less desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of His servants, and none of them that trust in Him shall be desolate. We'll never be alone. God is on our side when we cry out to Him. But verse 18 is the one that was really on my mind recently. The Lord is nigh to them that have a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Do I have a contrite spirit? Do I have a broken heart before God? Let's turn over to Psalm 5117. That's David's Psalm of of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51 and verse 17 says, The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Reminding us again that the sacrifices that are acceptable to God are sacrifices that are broken before Him, a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, and God will not turn that away. God will reach out. Isaiah 57, 15, as we keep moving over towards the New Testament in our Bibles. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one, who's that? God. Where is he at? He inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also as a contrite and humble spirit. So we see that the Spirit of God dwells in, in the universe, in, in heaven, throughout all that He's created. But what's special to me, it also dwells in the spirit of those of a contrite and humble spirit, the heart of those of a contrite and humble spirit. And why does God dwell there? He dwells there to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God longs to dwell in our hearts and spirits. And I believe that it's in His love that He allows us to go through those times of testing and uh, difficulty that we draw closer to Him, that we become less reliant upon ourselves and more dependent upon God of just a fuller and fuller surrender into His heart, into His life, and allowing us into our lives, allowing Him into our lives and to be more surrendered to Him. So I believe it works like this. The closer we are to God the less access the adversary has in our lives as far as temptation. And I'll say that again. The closer we are to God, I believe the less access the adversary has to come into our lives 
and to bring temptation into our lives. And in contrast to that, I believe the farther we drift away from the reality of being completely dependent upon God and to be broken before Him, the more access the adversary has to get in our lives and to bring temptation and to trip us up. I truly believe that. Brother Willis Horst is having revivals over at Peak. We weren't there. I've been trying to listen. And, I mean, we weren't there every night. We were there some nights. But I've been trying to listen in and keep up. And I would encourage everyone in this congregation who can to listen to the message on February 29, uh, Thursday, February 29, a uh, powerful message titled, Out of the Abundance of the Heart, about us drawing close to God and giving access or not giving access to, to Satan to bring temptation in our lives and the lives of others. So I encourage everyone who can, and if, if you don't have access to that, maybe you have a child that, that does, and you could listen to that on Podbean and sit around. What a challenging, challenging message from Brother Willis there on February 29, out of the abundance of the heart. Moving into this morning's message the title is, A Godly Discontentment. A Godly Discontentment. And you say, well, but the Scripture calls us to be content, right? Or not? Three questions. Are you content? Are you a contented person? Contentment means that we're satisfied with one's lot and means in life. We're happy with what we have. Apostle Paul said, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned that in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. How did he get to that point? Was it a natural occurrence that came with conversion? Well, notice the word. He says, I have learned to be content. It was something he had obviously had pursued and felt like that he was getting a grasp on it. He found that whatever state he was in, that didn't mean Virginia versus West Virginia. He's saying this, the lot of life he was in, he had found to be content. I know how to be abased. He learned to be down to nothing. I know how to everywhere and in all things I'm instructed to be both full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's sort of carrying us back around to where we started out of our dependence upon God. He said, I have learned to be content because I've learned that in Christ is the sufficiency that I need for the strength. He writes to Timothy, he said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. He's saying we can have both. We can have godliness and we can have contentment. And there's great gain in that. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith, therewith be content. And it goes on in all those other verses about temptations that come with affluence. Contentment is not doing nothing it is resting in God as we pursue more of Him. Contentment is not doing nothing. It is resting in God as we pursue more of Him. And then Paul writes again to the Hebrews in chapter 13 and says, Let your conversation or your entire manner of life be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And that brings us back again of it is in Christ that our sufficiency is met. And the more dependent we are upon Him and the more we are, are 
aware of our total dependence upon him, I believe the greater level of contentment we can enjoy in our lives. Second question, are you complacent? We're thinking about a week of revival meetings here. Am I complacent? What's the difference between contentment and complacency? Contentment is being satisfied with what God is allowing us to have. Complacency is being self-satisfied with our own accomplishments. Got what I need. I'm happy. Don't bother me. Thank you very much. I'd like to stay just where I'm at. What does complacency look like? Revelation 3 and verse 14. You know where we're going. Laodicea. These people were doing well in life. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, This thing saith the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, thou art neither hot nor cold. I wert that thou art cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So here were people that were doing some good things. They did a lot of good things at church, if you read about everything they did. But they had a little problem. They were complacent. They were just perfectly satisfied with where they're at. Don't bother me, thank you very much. Things are going good. And that's indication that I'm blessed, so don't bother me to go deeper with God. In essence, it's what I see here. But God said, you're missing something. You're missing the fact that spiritually you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee, buy of me gold, tried in the fire, thou mayest be rich, and white raiment thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve thou mayest see. Their spiritual eyes were waxing over. They had spiritual cataracts, so to speak. And he said, you need some eye salve so that you can see yourself as I see you. But verse 19, we see the love of God. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And he that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. Even as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in heaven. He that hath the ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So we see even in God's, or Jesus, the angel, in the condemnation that came on them, the challenge, it was followed by love. He said, I'm bringing, I'm bringing this rebuke or this chastening into your life. Be zealous because I want to come into your life. I want to enter into deep relationship with you and sup with you. The idea of, of being together, eating together, and he with me, and I will let you sit down with me in my throne and be an overcomer. Are we complacent? The third question, are we fervently in love with Jesus Christ? Revelation 2 and verse 1. And to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience. And thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hath labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. 
Are we fervently in love with Jesus Christ? I don't know what your experience was, but when I became a Christian, the grass got greener and the sky got bluer and the birds sang better, and it was a, it was a, a transformation. But there was still, I felt like there was still lack in my life. And after I was baptized and became a member of a body of believers, that feeling of lack was filled up, and then the sky was really blue, and the grass was really green, and the birds could really sing. I felt like it was a completion of my life to become part of a body of believers, uh, something that was missing. And I hope that was, you experienced some of that in your life. I hope you have. But the question is, have I stayed there and nourished that and grown in it, or did that kind of fade away? What is our first love? Our first love is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Have, have we nurtured that? Have, has that continued to grow? Yes, it changes, just like a marriage. Your love matures and it grows. But is it growing? Is it maturing? Do I know Him better now than I knew Him then? How are we doing? He said, you know, this church was doing good things. They were getting rid of evil. They had tried the false apostles and got rid of them. They had patience. They had labored. They didn't faint when times was tough. But he said, there's a problem. You've lost your fervent love for Jesus Christ. Verse 5, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent, and do the first works, or I will come quickly and remove that candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. He that hath an ear, let him hear. It's over in verse 7. There's always a promise following these challenges. Verse 7, He that an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And to them that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What a beautiful promise. He said, I will allow you to, if you come back to your love in Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity with me. You'll be in the presence of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. He said, repent. Return to your first love. The promise. How did we do on these three questions? Am I content with what God is currently providing in my life? Am I complacent in my spiritual growth? Happy where I'm at. Thank you very much. Please don't bother me. Am I fervently in love with Jesus Christ or has it waned in the recent past? If we were satisfied with where we're at spiritually, I believe we're lukewarm. We should always have that insatiable hunger for more of God and more of Jesus Christ and more of His Spirit and more of His presence in our lives. If we're satisfied with where we're at spiritually, I believe we're not walking close enough with Jesus to see ourselves for who we really are. And I'm speaking from my own personal experience. If I'm feeling good about where I'm at, I'm obviously not walking close enough to Christ to see in the mirror as I should. Turn with me to Luke 18. Luke 18 and verse 9. Here Jesus is teaching, and notice who he is teaching. 
And he spoke this parable unto certain which trusted themselves that they were righteous and despised others. These were lukewarm people. They felt good about where they were at, and they were looking down on others. No doubt they were comparing themselves among themselves as we see how Jesus addressed the issue. Two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. His prayers didn't get through the ceiling. God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice a week. That's pretty good. I think they're required to fast, what, once or twice a year. So he was, he was doing it a hundred times better than the law said he should. I give tithes of all that I possess. He was telling God what all he was doing. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. I say, if we're satisfied with where we're at spiritually, we're probably not walking close enough to God to see in the mirror of who I really am. Throughout the Bible, when people caught a glimpse of God, they fell down before Him. We're studying Isaiah. When he got a glimpse of the holiness of God, he said, Woe is me, I'm a sinful man. Job, at the end of the book, when God began to reveal Himself to Job and ask him some hard questions, Job said, Yeah, I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke, but I didn't truly know God. Ezekiel fell before God. Abraham, reverent before God. Moses, reverent before God. The people of Israel in Mount Sinai, they said, Moses, we don't want to get close to that mountain again. You go up there and talk to God and you come back and tell us what God has to say because we, when we see God for who He is, it brings fear into our heart. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration the blinding light of the glorified Jesus. Apostle Paul, or rather Saul on the road to Damascus, the changed man who thought he had it all together, he said, Lord, what will you have me to do? Have we reached that point in our lives? God, what will you have me to do? Are we completely contrite before him? You see, I think there was a transformation in Paul's life at that moment. He had knew about God before. He knew a lot about God. He no doubt knew most of the law by heart. But between seeing the blinding light of the glorified Jesus and being baptized for receiving his sight three days later, I believe Paul began a spiritual journey of not knowing about God, but a journey of knowing God personally. And there's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Do we know about God or do we know God personally? Those of you, Rollin maybe can read that or a few people, but most people probably can't read everything we have there on the front of the podium. But it was taken from a paper that I got some years ago from somewhere, Larry Showalter maybe, on about how to have a personal revival. And we just put a few of the, of the topic highlights there on that paper. 
First of all, get thoroughly dissatisfied with yourself. Complacency is the deadly enemy of spiritual progress. The contented soul is a stagnant soul. When speaking of earthly goods, Paul could say, I've learned to be content. I liked how he broke this. Paul said, I'm content when it comes to earthly goods, but when referring to his spiritual life, he testified, I press on toward the mark, so disturb the gift of God that is in thee. Get dissatisfied with where we're at. Set your face like a flint toward a sweeping transformation of your life. Tim and experiments are tagged for failure before they start. One of the World War II generals, which one of them was, said, to enter a battle without the will to win it is fatal. Are we entering the spiritual battles without the will and the faith to win it? Set your face for transformation. You must throw your whole soul into our desire for God. The kingdom of God suffereth violence, so the violent take it by force. Put yourself in the way of blessing. It is a mistake to look for grace to visit us as a kind of benign magic or to expect God's help to come as a windfall apart from the conditions known and met. And what he's saying is the Bible clearly tells us what conditions must be known and met in order to come to God. And a broken and a contrite spirit is the foundation for that. We are plainly, there are plainly marked paths which lead straight to the green pastures. Let us walk in them and to desire revival, for instance, and at the same time to neglect prayer and devotion is to wish one way and to walk another. Number four, do a thorough job of repenting. Do not hurry to get it over with. Hasty repentance means shallow spiritual lack of certainty in whole life. Let godly sorrow do your healing work. Until we allow the conscience of sin to wound us, we will never develop a fear of evil. It is our wretched habit of tolerating sin that keeps our half dead, keeps us in a half dead condition. Number five, make restitution wherever possible. If you owe a debt, pay it. At least have a frank understanding with your creditor about your intention. So your honesty will be above question. If you have quarreled with anyone, go as far as you can in effort to achieve reconciliation. If possible, make crooked, crooked things straight in your life. Number six, bring your life into accord with the Sermon on the Mount and such other New Testament scriptures as are designed to instruct us in the way of righteousness. An honest man with an open Bible and a pad and pencil is sure to find out what is wrong with him very quickly. It reminds me of the book of James where it says that the man who looks in the mirror and goes away and forgets what he's seeing is someone who isn't taking the Word of God seriously. I recommend this self-examination be done, he says. Number seven, be serious-minded, and that in so much this paper was written, I don't know, a long time ago, by A.W. Tozer. And notice what he had to say here in number seven, be serious-minded. You can well afford to see fewer comedy shows on TV. Unless you break away from the funny boys, every spiritual impression will continue to be lost on your heart in your own living room. The people of the world used to go to the movies to escape serious thinking about God and religion, and now we would join them, and you would not join them there, but now every spiritual communion with them, and now people enjoy spiritual communion with them in their own homes. The devil's ideals, moral standards, and mental attitudes are being accepted by you without you knowing it, and you wonder why you cannot make progress in your Christian life. Your interior climate is not favorable to the growth of spiritual graces. There must be a permanent improvement in our interior life and the things that we feed on. He says, be serious-minded. Don't let entertainment world impact your life. Number eight, deliberately narrow your jack-of-all-trade is a master of none. 
Pursue to know Christ. He is the essence of wisdom and beauty and virtue. To know Him in growing intimacy is to increase an appreciation of all things good and beautiful. The mansions of their, of their heart will become larger when their doors are thrown open to Christ and closed against the world and sin. Try it. Takes us back to where we started. The closer we are to God, the more of His presence and blessing we will feel and the less opportunity our adversary will have to get into our lives. Number nine, begin to witness. Find something to do for Christ and your fellow men. I remember the first couple of times I went along on bus trips or went out to Duke Street, and I'd worry all the way to Washington, D.C. What about these hard questions that someone might ask? And what if I don't know the answer? And, and I don't know if you experienced that in your life, but, and I still feel that. You know why? Because those things are good. It's good to go out and share the gospel with other people and allow them to ask us those hard questions and, and be like one man. He said he would always answer, if I, don't, if I can't point you to the scripture that ministers, I'll take your name and phone number and go home and study until I can get back with you and share it. You see, sharing the gospel with others does something for us that I don't think we can meet any other way. It, it, it makes us dig and really embrace and think about what we believe and do we believe it enough to be a good salesman and sell it to others my wife and i were in pennsylvania last week and we walked through the home and garden show up at there were some pretty talented salesmen up there i don't know if their products was as good as they thought but uh, you know it wouldn't have worked if he'd have been up there and said ah i'm selling this stuff but i don't know it wouldn't have went very good you have something to share that's better than anything else that this world will ever know. It's salvation through Jesus Christ. Witness to others. Share with others. Number 10, have faith in God. Begin to expect. Look up toward the throne where your advocate is at, at God's right hand. All heaven is on your side and God will not disappoint us. When we throw open the doors of our lives to God, He will not disappoint us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. That's a promise that we can rest in. If you follow these suggestions, you will most surely experience revival in your own heart. And who can tell how far it will spread? God knows how desperately the church needs spiritual resurrection. It can only come through the revived individual, one soul at a time. I'll read a few more verses here before I close. Thinking about what God offers to those who are surrendered to Him. Peter says this, According to His divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Do you believe that? That in the Spirit of God, in the presence of God, in the kingdom of God, He gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He alone is the source. And through knowledge of Him, how? through knowledge of Him, knowing Him. What did Jesus tell those who turned away? He said, Depart from me, I never knew you. But through the knowledge of Him, He hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are giving to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. I still marvel at that. We, me, lowly, sinful, human flesh, through the Spirit of God, becomes a partaker of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. I don't, my vocabulary can't describe how wonderful that is. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. See, we're doing addition here. We notice then we get done, God multiplies. We're doing addition. Beside all this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, ever increase, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor un of our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse takes us back up to where we started in verse 3. Knowledge of Him. Knowledge of Him. Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind. What did the angel of the Lord Jesus say to uh, the apostle John as he gave him the revelation? He said, I will give you some eye so you can see. And the scripture here in 1 Peter says, if we are not abounding in these virtues, fruits of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, we are blind. We cannot see afar off, hath forgotten he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence that you make your calling and elections, ye shall never fall. I see here again of a drawing close to God, a walking close to God, and victory over the adversary coming out of his. If you do these things, you shall never fail or fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Aren't those wonderful promises for the children of God? And all we have to do is fall on our faces at the foot of the cross and say, God, I'm done fighting on my own. I look to you in your spirit for strength. So what do we anticipate in the coming week? I'm not one who looks at revival meetings as a time to have this wonderful mountaintop experience just to go back in the valley. Um, Charles Finney was a man who was well known and he traveled a lot and there was probably hundreds if not thousands of come to the front con conversion experiences but those who followed that work said that they think about 10% of the people remained true to those commitments. It was up and then back to the old life. But there was another man, and I can't remember his name because he didn't get famous, who was also involved in evangelistic work at that time, had a different approach. And I think there was more follow-up and more work following. And they estimate that 90% of the people who made commitments in his presence and in the meetings where he was at followed through and walked with Christ so it's a following through and that's the heart of what's on my heart this morning is that revival is nothing more than just being more thoroughly dead to ourselves dying more and being more alive through the spirit drawing closer to God and we only draw closer to God by dying more to ourselves except a kernel of wheat fall to the ground we don't get close to God so what are your expectations? For you young mothers with babies, is it survival to get through the week? I know, it takes a lot to get here night after night. Is the speaker interesting? Is it up to the evangelists to make sure that we experience a change in our lives? Or is it our responsibility to examine our hearts and open our lives to God and simply allow the word that is spoken to be a conduit to bring conviction into our hearts and our lives. Is my heart prepared for a week of preaching? Am I really serious about my relationship with God? 
Do I really want God to search my life and show me imperfections? Do I really want God to purge the impurities that he finds there? And can I truly pray with the psalmist, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. But I struggle a bit with that prayer at times. Do I really want that? Do I really want God, the Holy One, the Creator, the Omniscient One, to just get down in my life with His search life and to pry and to look and to show and to try our thoughts and show us what needs to change. You know, that's where blessing at. That's where change is at. That's where a drawing closer is at. That's, that's where protection from the evil one is at, is getting down there and getting close to God, walking close to Him, being at the end of ourselves without God having to bring some traumatic event into our lives, but just walking and living at the end of ourselves. See, there's a big difference between trying to keep a resolution to do better and being completely dependent upon God. You follow the difference? Okay, it's January, so I have to do better at reading or praying or whatever. That's different than saying, God, I'm so aware of my need of you that I need to be with you. Not because I'm forcing myself, but just being open before God. So in closing, my thoughts are this. We are only as close to God as we are open to Him. And we are only as open to God as we are close to Him. May God add His blessing. I encourage you, if you have opportunity, to listen to Brother Willis Horst's message from Leap Year Evening at Peak. Do we have a song?